Chapter 8 of Napoleon, a short biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Napoleon, a short biography by R. M. Johnston. Chapter 8 The Duc d'Anguien and Trafalgar. Conspiracies. The Bonaparte family. Moreau imperial aspirations the duc d'anguin proclamation of the empire war with england the trafalgar campaign alongside of the extraordinary building up of the napoleonic legislative and administrative edifice the consulate was one long and secret struggle against the agitation and plots of the ultra jacobins on the one hand and of the ultra royalists on the other not long after marengo a desperate attempt on the first consul's life was made a barrel of gunpowder was loaded on a handcart that was placed in a convenient position at a spot in the rue saint nices by which the first consul's carriage must be driven on its way to the opera that night bonaparte was unpunctual and the coachman who is said to have been intoxicated lashed his horses furiously through the intricate network of streets at the back of the tuileries to make up for the lost time the explosion took place just an instant too late and though many lives were lost and much damage was done the first consul went unscathed at the opera there was a scene of the greatest excitement during which only two persons maintained a calm and dignified exterior napoleon and his sister caroline the personal friends of the first consul such men as duroc and junot were quite unnerved hortense beauharnais was crying josephine was hysterical the spectators were eagerly demonstrating their joy at the escape of the head of the state and caroline alone with her brother sat in the front of the box watching the scene with a cool gaze of all napoleon's brothers and sisters she probably resembled him most in uniting passionate ambition to cool calculation and boundless courage of the brothers the strongest in character was lucien whose decisive action on the eighteenth and nineteenth of brumaire has already been noted conspicuous during the early days of the consulate he soon quarrelled with his powerful brother on a matrimonial question and eventually separated himself from him and lost all political influence the eldest joseph was the most subservient and useful stronger in intellect than in character he was always conspicuous as a subordinate and was eventually rewarded with two insecure thrones louis a man of intelligence but uncertain disposition married napoleon's stepdaughter hortense who inherited much of her mother's charm and temperament what with matrimonial difficulties with hortense and political ones with napoleon louis found his career not an easy one he was never an important figure but a son of hortense was destined to restore the empire as napoleon the third the youngest of the brothers jerome was the least weighty though even he was to become a king his grandson prince napoleon victor is at the present day the bonapartist pretender thus of the five sons of charles bonaparte one was to be an emperor and three kings 
his daughters rose almost equally high elisa married a corsican who was later created prince bacciocchi and was given an italian principality pauline the most beautiful member of a striking family married first general leclerc and after his death in the expedition of san domingo prince borghese caroline the youngest married joaquim murat and eventually became queen of naples her ambition finally drove her to betray her brother in his greatest hour of need josephine's son eugene is the only member of the first consul's family not yet mentioned at the commencement of the consulate he was a mere boy before the end of the empire he had made his mark and shown such qualities political and military that it will be no exaggeration to say that it would have proved fortunate for france had the imperial throne come to him as a consequence of the fall of his stepfather but this enumeration of the bonapartes and beauharnais is a digression it is now necessary to return to the struggle of the consular government for existence plot succeeded plot the enemies of bonaparte became more and more desperate as each month increased his power and brought him nearer to what was now his undisguised goal the throne the crisis culminated in the early weeks of eighteen o four when a number of sensational arrests startled paris several royalist conspirators with the secret assistance of the british government had made their way into the capital with the intention of making some attempt against the first consul they were mostly men of desperate fortunes who had taken part in the insurrectionary movements in vendee and brittany their leaders were cadoudal and the ex-republican general pichegru cadoudal was only taken after a fierce resistance Pichegru was found strangled in his prison shortly after his capture. But the most important and sensational arrest of all was that of General Moreau, who appears to have had no real connection with the conspiracy. Moreau, the victor of Hohenlinden, was as beloved by the army of Germany as Bonaparte was by the army of Italy. Moreau, the staunch Republican, was the hope of many who saw in Bonaparte the coming caesar moreau who had always retreated from politics might be used to pull down a fellow-general who had forgotten his soldier's duty he was accused of complicity in the royalist plot arrested and tried although nothing substantial could be proved against him he was driven into exile and left france for america cadoudal was less fortunate and he together with several of his accomplices was sentenced to death but the matter did not end here the extremely dangerous conspiracy of cadoudal following as it had many others and coinciding with the moment at which bonaparte had at last decided to seize the crown appears to have thrown him into a state of nervous excitement was he to reach the object of his ambition or were his enemies to pull him down at the last moment he seems to have thought and machiavelli would have approved that under such circumstances he could keep his enemies down only by a stroke of terror he aimed a blow at the republicans by arresting moreau he dealt one to the bourbons by virtually assassinating the duc d'enghien this young prince of the conde branch of the house of bourbon was near the french frontier staying in a country house 
in the duchy of baden he had held a command in the army with which the french emigres had fought the republic and his presence on the border was held to signify that on the success of cadudal he was to enter france and take command of the royalist movement on the fifteenth of march a party of gendarmes commanded by savary a confidential agent of bonaparte violated the frontier of baden and taking the duke from his bed placed him in a carriage and hurried him to paris he arrived there on the night of the nineteenth was conveyed to the fort of vincennes tried by a subservient court-martial in the course of the same night sentenced to death on no evidence and shot at dawn this crime the most obvious blot on napoleon's name produced a wave of indignation that swept all europe including france not one of the first consul's supporters approved the act most of them regretted or repudiated it chateaubriand resigned from the diplomatic service talleyrand sententiously declared that the execution of the duc d'enghien was worse than a crime it was a blunder yet as a stroke of terror however unsuited to the political conditions of the nineteenth century it was not altogether unsuccessful from that time on france acknowledged her master without question and the stain of blood of the twentieth of march eighteen o four did not prevent the proclamation of the empire on the eighteenth of may following in eighteen o two a plebiscite had converted bonaparte's consulate for ten years into a consulate for life in eighteen o four there was little more to do than to make the dignity hereditary and to change its title that of king would not have been tolerated by france even that of emperor which bonaparte chose was associated with the continuance of france as a republic and for many months after the proclamation of the emperor napoleon france still retained the political style she had assumed on the first of vendemiaire of the year one the twenty second september seventeen ninety two the coronation of the new emperor took place at the cathedral of notre dame on the second of december following his proclamation the ceremony was invested with the greatest pomp and the pope was persuaded into travelling to paris to perform it it was many years since the annals of the papacy had registered a similar event and in the minds of all people of the latin race it gave the new monarch a consecration that placed him on a not much lower level than that of the proudest houses of europe whose power reposed on the basis of divine right in the following may eighteen o five napoleon proceeded to milan the capital of what had hitherto been known as the cisalpine republic there he proclaimed the kingdom of italy an ambitious and suggestive name for such a small state as lombardy and her dependencies he crowned himself with the iron crown of the lombards and announced that the viceroyalty would be entrusted to prince eugene who would be his heir to the italian throne during these ceremonies the republic of genoa sent a deputation asking for incorporation with france this was of course an instigated act it gave more obvious proof than any previous one that ambitious aggressiveness might be expected 
as the keynote of the policy of the emperor napoleon it offended austria's pride and before long drew that power into a new contest with france the third since the days of the republic we must now re-enter the atmosphere of war that constitutes the background of napoleon's career in eighteen o five began the first of the three great cycles of the wars of the empire but to understand the events of the continental war of eighteen o five we must first take up the relations of france and england at the point at which we left them austria signed peace with france at luneville after marengo in eighteen o one leaving great britain alone at war that power having driven the remains of bonaparte's army from egypt and having also captured malta now entered into negotiation peace was eventually concluded at amiens on the twenty seventh of march eighteen o two the negotiations were difficult but the only essential question was really that of the mediterranean and malta great britain finally agreed to withdraw from the island in favor of some neutral power but the position of malta midway between the western and eastern extremities of the mediterranean and the now unveiled ambition of bonaparte to acquire a colonial empire and to resume sooner or later his movement towards the east made the british cabinet defer evacuation french troops occupied part of the kingdom of naples with the port of taranto and the french government declined to remove them so long as the british remained at malta the peace between the two countries was in fact little more than a truce as was well shown by a medal struck by denon in which bonaparte's head is covered with a helmet and surmounted by the threatening legend armée pour la paix armed for peace after much diplomatic disputation during which the first consul was strengthening his hold on italy and switzerland and preparing plans for transoceanic extension great britain broke off negotiations on the question of malta and withdrew her ambassador from paris on the twelfth of may eighteen o three this renewal of hostilities between france and great britain made bonaparte adjourn his colonial ambitions it influenced among other things his relations with america the aggressive policy of the directoire had led to a rupture between france and the united states in seventeen ninety eight this had been patched up by bonaparte in eighteen o one but a little later he set his eyes on louisiana and would have probably attempted its occupation with the assent of its spanish owners in the face of clearly expressed american opposition had not the inevitableness of war with england led him to reconsider his decision the people of the united states viewed the transfer of louisiana from spain to france with the utmost dislike it would have given france the western bank of the mississippi from the gulf to the canadian lakes barring all possibility of expansion to the west so it proved fortunate for the good relations of france and the united states that the former now plunged into war with great britain once more by so doing she lost all power of action beyond the seas and was better prepared to abandon her new colonial scheme a rapid negotiation 
resulted in the transfer of Louisiana to the United States for a sum of 60 million francs, $11,250,000. Footnote 1. Louisiana included not only what is now the state of that name, but the whole of the western half of the basin of the Mississippi. End footnote. In 1803, the position of Bonaparte in regard to a war with Great Britain was very different from what it had been in 1798. Then, the resources of France were limited. The ambition of the young general urged him to hazardous courses. Now, the resources of the country were vastly increased, and the first consul was no longer ready to leave France and seek for glory at the further end of the Mediterranean. For every reason, the opposite mode of attack to that of 1798 was chosen, and Bonaparte decided on the invasion of England. This great naval and military operation could not be carried out at a moment's notice, but necessitated preparations spreading over many months. From Dieppe to Antwerp, the coast was armed with batteries covering numerous camps, in which troops began to accumulate. Every port, great and small, was fortified, improved, and filled with pontoons and gunboats. Hundreds of gun vessels and numerous light cruisers were collected to engage the British ships that scoured the channel. But it was useless to venture troops in light transports to cross the channel while the British fleet held command of the sea. Nor did Napoleon seriously contemplate doing so. He planned a gigantic naval campaign that was to give him control of the channel. His plan changed in details almost from day to day, but in broad outline, as it came nearest execution, it was as follows. There were at that time several French squadrons, of which the two largest were stationed at Brest and Toulon. Between these two ports, following the coastline of France and of Spain, her ally, were several others, such as Rochefort, Ferrol, Cadiz, and Cartagena, where smaller divisions were stationed. But the Brest fleet was closely blockaded by Lord Cornwallis, and that at Toulon was watched by Lord Nelson. At every point, as the fleets were distributed, the British were practically assured of success. To neutralize this advantage, to delude the British admirals, to concentrate the greatest possible force on the decisive point, Napoleon worked out a scheme of which we will now follow the unfolding. Admiral Villeneuve, commanding the Toulon fleet, in obedience to instructions, took advantage of a favoring slant of wind to make his escape from that port in the spring of 1805. He sailed through the Strait of Gibraltar, and thence nearly due west. Nelson was quickly on his track and followed out into the Atlantic. The British admiral soon learned that his adversary was sailing west, and concluding that his business was in the West Indian Islands, determined to cross the Atlantic in pursuit. But Villeneuve's real objective was not in the West Indies. His long journey of 3,000 miles was only intended to deceive and distract the eye from the real point of danger. Had Nelson's instinct been as keen as Napoleon's plan was large, he would have sailed from Gibraltar not for the West Indies, but for the mouth of the Channel, for there was the vital point. 
as it was he sailed west and having reached the west indies discovered that villeneuve after a stay of a few days only had put to sea again this time steering east once more nelson pursued but once more he failed to see the bearing of villeneuve's extraordinary movement and did not shape his course for the channel but sailed back towards the mediterranean the intention of napoleon was that the fleet should make land at ferrol free the small squadron there and thence sail to rochefort and brest at that point he hoped that the superiority of his combined fleets would enable them to overpower cornwallis and sweep up the channel it would have taken a stronger man than villeneuve to carry out this great plan successfully he fought an indecisive action with a smaller english fleet under calder off ferrol on the twenty second of july and then decided he could not reach brest eventually retiring to cadiz other events had meanwhile put an end to napoleon's project of an invasion of england but before relating those events the fate of villeneuve's fleet must be briefly told the emperor was indignant at what he considered his admiral's pusillanimity villeneuve to forestall his removal from command determined to take his fleet out of cadiz and fight at any cost on the twenty first of october eighteen o five he met nelson off cape trafalgar and was utterly defeated by the superior skill of his opponent the franco-spanish fleet was nearly entirely destroyed but england's greatest admiral paid for victory with his life end of chapter eight recording by linda johnson